Welcome to Detoxicity. This is a podcast in which I try to change the narrative around masculinity a little bit and allow some progressive voices and some interesting voices, diverse voices, to come into the picture. My name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce this show, and I thank you very, very much for listening and for supporting from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you are subscribing to it. If you aren't, please press the subscribe button on wherever it is you're listening to it, and uh, that way you'll get episodes on demand when they come, uh, which is usually on Wednesday mornings. I also certainly ask that you uh, spread the word. Uh, please rate the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen. Um, make sure you leave a comment if you have something nice to say or if you have something constructive to say. It doesn't all have to be nice. And by all means, tell your friends, tell anyone who you think might get some creative juice or inspirational juice or just would uh, you'd like to listen to this please spread the word uh, however you can i am on social media if you would like to follow me i am on instagram at detox pod guy uh, my twitter is on hiatus for a little bit it will come back but it is tis mike joseph feel free to follow me on either of those platforms there is also facebook.com slash detoxicity and if you have a comment you can email me detoxpod at gmail.com I am always on the lookout for new guests, so if you know somebody who you think has an interesting story to tell or something to add to the overall conversation around detoxifying masculinity, please reach out to me via any of those platforms, and certainly if you yourself would like to be a part of this podcast, please reach out, let me know. Once again, I thank you for listening. As some of you who are regular listeners might know, I used to be a pop culture writer, a music writer. A lot of the work that I did was for a website called popdose.com. You can still find some of my work there. And one of the people that I met through my work on that podcast going back over a decade is this episode's guest, Michael Forts. Uh, Michael is based in the Bay Area. Uh, big shout out to all of my Bay Area uh, friends. And he's originally from New England. And Michael, by day, is an administrative professional still very much a pop culture champion. We start off this conversation talking about his uh, prodigious collection of physical media. Michael and I have become closer over the past four or five years, although we've known each other for about ten. Our discussions tend to be on the deep side, they tend to be on the serious side, and that leads pretty neatly into things that we discuss over our podcast chat. Michael uh, underwent a pretty interesting childhood. And a content warning for everybody listening that this episode does describe abuse in detail, so you might want to just be prepared, be prepared for that. Uh, Michael has also lived in sort of an ethnically ambiguous space for a long time, which has served him well in some cases because it feels like he can kind of fit in anywhere, but also caused him some strife earlier in his life from being bullied. We discussed that. Uh, we discussed moms, in particular his mom. And since Mother's Day was just a couple of days ago, I want to give a shout out to all of the moms out there. And we also talk about uh, his current hometown, his love for California, why he wanted to live out there, why he enjoys living out in the Bay Area now. Relationships are a big thing for me and also a big thing for Michael. And he finds himself currently in a four-year-long relationship with his partner. And that comes after a series of difficult relationships and some, some trouble dating, which I think a lot of guys have, particularly guys who are more of the retiring, shy types, quiet types. And he discusses how he broke through that 
and what led to his current relationship and what keeps that relationship alive. So there's a lot to discover, a lot to uncover, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. So everybody, here is Michael Forts, Mike and Michael on Detox Pod. So my name is Michael Forts, probably the way that most people would identify me, an avid listener of music. I collect physical media, and in the past I was writing a lot of reviews. I was interviewing musicians, and in recent years I devoted time to playing music more frequently than I used to. I have a lot of great experiences playing music, and I'm hoping to get more into that in the future. By day, I'm an administrative professional. I've been doing administrative work for, yeah, about two decades now. I discovered that higher education is really an environment that suits me, and it's a mission that suits me, and my personality being one that defines uh, order where order needs to be put in place and keeping things on track, that administrative professional path that follows me all the way out here to the Bay Area where I reside where I've been for the past 18 years, originally from Rhode Island, okay. out on the East Coast. And I've even had a little bit of political past too, having served as a, an at-large presidential delegate to the 2016 De- uh, Democratic National Convention. And I also uh, served a term as a state delegate to the California Democratic State Central Committee back in 2017 and 18. Because we know each other from writing about music. Uh, Big shout out to Pop Dose. Uh, And I'm looking at your background, which Mm -hmm. is, it's not a Zoom background. It is actual what's happening behind you. And there is a ton of physical media. And then to your right, there is another big stack of shelves. Mm -hmm. Just to to give an, uh, an idea of scale here, how much physical music-related media do you think you have? Oh, that's a great question. Last time I did a rough count, and I do keep a spreadsheet, by the way. I I keep spreadsheets, and I get like halfway through, and I'm like, man, fuck this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things where you have to do it a little bit at a time. Otherwise, it's just going to totally overwhelm you. Last rough count I did, I think I was somewhere in excess of maybe 500 LPs, maybe 500 or so eight tracks. I'm shaking my head just because the idea. So I'll let you finish, but I have questions. Yeah. CDs, I think probably about as many, maybe a couple thousand and 45s. Do you have an eight track player? I have several eight track players. Oh my God, Michael. (laughs) Do you actively play eight tracks? Yes. And in fact, I listened to a couple yesterday. Wow. I, I shouldn't act surprised at the fact that you collect physical media, although I am a little stunned that you own more than one eight track player. What inspired your love of music? It's really tough to say where it came from, but it's something that seems to have been there since before I was even able to form long lasting memories. My father had made a cassette of me when I was very young. I must have been like one or two years old, uh, just repeating the word radio over and over again on a a little cassette. And I just gravitated towards it when I was really, really young. And my parents noticed that I had a natural attraction to music. So my mother started giving me her 45s. I broke a lot of them. (laughs) As kids do. 
at the age of two or three, it's very easy to break records. So mm-hmm. I broke a lot of her records. My father started giving me some of his LPs that he would pull from my grandparents' basement. And then other members of the extended family on both sides of the family started feeding into that. They'd be giving me uh, 45s for Christmas and for birthdays. And, and there were a couple of eight tracks around the house. And we had one of those, those old Panasonic TNT plungers. We had the yellow one. Okay. Um, yeah. Give a little little background on, on what that is. Oh, yeah. I have actually have one that I can show you. I can pull off my cell phone. This is the package here. Oh, So wow. you can see that there are multiple colors here. The yellow one is the one oh, I had. Oh, I've up. seen that before. But this, the one in this box is the red one. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's been refurbished, rebuilt. It doesn't sound the greatest because it's got a, a tiny little speaker in it that just sounds like an old-fashioned transistor radio, but it's a cool little thing to have. Is there anything that you collect other than music? Other than music? I would say not now, but back when I was a child, I used to collect keys and I used to collect bottle caps. Okay. And when I got a little older, I started collecting Transformers. That immediately dates you. Yeah. <laughs> As it's funny. I, I don't know what the demographic information is for this podcast, but I would imagine that the majority of people that listen can certainly relate to the collecting of Transformers. Uh, they are probably in your and my general age range. Yeah, most definitely. And they were really fascinating toys, especially the original ones that weren't 100% made of plastic that had some metal parts too. For sure. So I didn't know that you were born in New England. I thought you were always a Californian. What was it like growing up in New England? You did mention when we chatted earlier about some bullying, and I'm kind of curious what that was about. Yeah, so I think the first year and a half or so of my life, which I of course, I don't remember. I lived with my parents in a, a little apartment in Providence above a pizza parlor. And then when they had enough money, they bought their first house in a small town, which is technically part of Warwick, which is where the, the main airport in Rhode Island is. That's where I lived up until I started fourth grade. And while I was there, I was actually very happy. There were a couple of incidents that made my mother think twice about staying there. I remember one incident where I was chased by an older kid when I was walking home from school. And I tripped over a a small stone uh, border around a neighbor's house. And then a bus was rounding the corner. And of course, with the driver sitting up so high, driver thought that maybe the bus had run over me. Oh, (laughs) God. Which hadn't happened, of course, but it, the, the bus driver was, was really scared. Fortunately, I was just two houses away, so my mother was able to run and come get me. And there was another incident. Actually, there were a couple of incidents where there was some, I guess you could classify it as sexual abuse. There was a neighbor next door who exposed himself to me. He asked me, when, did you ever see a pecker before? And I didn't know what he was talking about. Had to have been maybe, you know, five or so. Sure. Like, No. So then he like pulls down his pants and yeah, and I was scared and I immediately turned around and ran home. It's like, oh my God, what was that? And another incident that happened, a sleepover with a, 
a friend, a neighbor who was about a year older than me. We were in bunk beds and he invited me into his bunk and he pulled his pants down too and put his junk in my face. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. I didn't really think much of it. I told my parents the next day what had happened. And then my mother said, you can't play with him anymore. But don't tell him that when he asked me, you know, can I come over and play? And so of course I said, no, my mother said, I can't play with you anymore which started this whole dispute between my parents and his parents. And quite honestly, hearing the yelling and screaming of my parents over the phone together at his parents, when they called up and started the fight with them, was more traumatic than what actually happened in the bed. <laughs> right, right. I, I wonder, and this is a, 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 a difficult subject, because there are things that happened to me when I was younger as well. Mm -hmm. I wonder how commonplace it is for young boys and young girls for that matter to, to be indoctrinated or, or to have these things. It's a much more common occurrence for these things to happen to young people than we even think it is. I think it probably is. And We've even heard stories from famous people about, yeah. about these experiences when they're young children. Right. You know, it's like boys were doing things like that at that age. Right. You know, on a peer-to-peer -peer level. Yeah, I remember an ex-partner talking to me about, and I'm not making this term up. This is coming from this person who is Jewish. He would call it Jew camp. And, you know, that the amount of sexual activity happening between the campers was was at a pretty high level. And so I think there are a lot of adults out there who may not necessarily realize how exposed kids are to whether it be content or whether they stumble in on stuff. Because I remember older relatives like making me watch porn. Oh, wow. Yeah, when I was like 10 or 11 years old, without having a real understanding of what it was. It's a very odd subject, an uncomfortable subject, and I'm, I'm not really sure how to navigate that. But it does sound like those were events that at least were somewhat traumatizing for you, particularly now with like 30 years retrospect. I mean, they were somewhat traumatizing for me, mm -hmm. even if yeah. it's like peer-to-peer -peer stuff. Yeah, just in my perspective, the peer-to-peer -peer stuff was probably a little bit easier to navigate because there isn't the power dynamic right. that exists when an adult is involved. And that was a big reason why, why my mother didn't push for me to go into the Boy Scouts if I didn't want to. And she also would actively discourage me from being an altar boy because it's been around as long as the church has been around that adults in the, the church would take advantage of the kids. But those were some of the things that that I kind of would gloss over when I would think I didn't want to move. Going to a small town where I didn't know anybody, it was different. I was suddenly in a place where I wasn't the popular kid, and I was making friends with people who had different backgrounds than the ones that that I grew up with. Their parents had different backgrounds, and the the dynamic was it shifted a lot. People that I thought were my friends originally would sometimes do things that I wasn't cool with. And even during my first year there, I got into a, a tussle with someone who ended up kicking me in the head, which caused a whole other thing with Jeez. lawyers getting involved. And Oh, wow. 
and my parents thinking about filing a suit, but they didn't go through with it because I got so frustrated with having to be asked the same questions over and over again by the attorneys that it stressed me out. And the kid who did that to me would sometimes run into me later on, like in junior high or high school and say, and turn to someone he was with and say, Hey, I kicked him in the head in fourth grade. And it's like, Oh my God. That's really? a of honor. <laughs> you know, people would say and do a lot of dumb things back then. I gotta ask, uh, how much did the fact that I'm going to try to word this properly, that you have in a look that is not easily identifiable from a racial or ethnic perspective play into any of that? Oh, especially when we got into junior high and high school, it played a very big part. I was, I've probably been called just about every racial slur you can think of that doesn't pertain to Asian Americans, because I don't look remotely Asian at all. But in New England, uh, living amongst children whose parents brought some some bad ideas into their parenting, I would get called all sorts of names. And it was just really, really frustrating because I wasn't experiencing that in my previous school. So it was a new thing for me. And I think I carried a lot of insecurity and shame around that because I didn't want to be somebody who was going to be picked on and ridiculed. It sounds like your mom was definitely kind of a grounding influence and the person who made sense of, of things that you as a kid were not able to make sense of. That's very true. And I was very drawn to her early on, I think. She also uh, played a big part in feeding my musical background actively. My father fed into it too, not quite as actively, but my mother actively fed into it. That's awesome. And I'm projecting a little when I say this, but was there ever any sense that your love of music somehow made you quote unquote less manly or less masculine? Was there ever the like, take this record out of your hand and here's a baseball bat or here's a football? Certainly not in my family life did that happen. I was never really pushed into sports, but once I started seeing which kids in school were getting more attention from girls and which kids in school were the most popular and which kids in school were the ones that you didn't want to mess with, you know, there was a common denominator amongst them. They were all into sports. Sure. And I wasn't into sports. And some of the homophobic slurs out there were thrown at me as well. So I think that probably played a part into it. Kids in our generation, I think, threw the word fag around in a much... What am I trying to say here? I think they threw not just the pejorative, but the actual word gay mm -hmm. around in a way that meant stereotypically effeminate or not not masculine, not tough, more mm -hmm. so than they meant actual person who has sex with people of the same sex. So anybody who was on the timid side or had artistic flair or wasn't in the sports or was soft-spoken, it didn't necessarily matter if you had mannerisms that people more commonly associate with gay. It was just like, if you're not walking around with swagger, if you're not 
punching people, if you're not bullying people, then then you're a fag. I, I don't know if that has changed in the last 35, 40 years or not, but that is the impression that I get just from throwing that word around when I was a kid in the 80s like everybody else did and having that word thrown at me a lot in, in the 80s and 90s. I mean, for it to kind of turn out to be true, but also, also being used for a lot of people in which it turned out to not be true. Yeah, certainly, certainly I would say that was true uh, for me and my community growing up. The word fag, it was a general pejorative, but um, by the time we got to high school, kids knew what that word meant. Right. And when they would throw it around, they were throwing it around with a bit more venom than when we were in elementary school. Yeah, kids at that point are also aware of how much words can hurt. Children are really awful people. I, I, I hate to say that. And, and at some point in your development, you either learn to not be awful or you just continue being more awful, which is how we get a lot of United States senators. But it's a weird thing that a lot of kids can be so sensitive and so caring. And I think about that in terms of some of my friends who have like trans children and the adaptability and the acceptance of all that. But then you think about even now the social media bullying and the actual like 3D bullying we went through when we were kids. Like, wow, children and teenagers are just horrible. And how do we even get to become thoughtful, empathetic adults when the backdrop for that is 16 or 17 years of just being a narcissistic, self-involved, emotional roller coaster of matter. That's a tough one. And as you were saying all that, I immediately flashed back to this this time when I was riding the school bus with one of my friends and and we were complaining about the older kids who had been tormenting us. And I turned to him and I said, wouldn't it be great one day when we're all older and they've learned how to, to be better people? And some of them did become better people, but some of them did not. Or as my mother true. sometimes would say, once an asshole, always an asshole. <laughs> See, and that sounds like a very New England thing to say. I can almost yeah. hear it said with the with the New England accent. Yep. Um, <laughs> but so, I, I don't believe in that 100%. I do believe people can change, but... I do believe some people, it's it's impossible for them to change. It's just being able to um, navigate that and identify that can be tough for some people. I think you're right. I think we all have the capacity to change. Sometimes it takes a nurturing influence or nurturing influences to help us navigate the change. Sometimes we got to get over our own shit in order to make the change. And unfortunately... Sometimes it takes a traumatic event to force us to make the change. And then some people might have none of those things and still somehow get it together to make a change. And some people might have all of those things and somehow not make a change. But there's so many factors in, involved in all of that. Most definitely. And one of the factors that I've been learning more about in recent years is uh, certain forms of mental illness can prevent people from being able to change, especially those with narcissistic personality disorder, which is just, it's really sad to think about. But at the same time, we, we've got our own lives to live and we've got to be able to take our, our precious 
resources, our time and our energy and, and focus them in areas where we actually can have some lasting effect. Yeah, it would be nice to be able to save the world, but it's ultimately more important that we save ourselves. Exactly. Because if, if we don't have everything we need to function, how are we going to be of any use to anyone else? Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. So you seem to have a pretty strong sense of self. Was that just always the case or was it something you had to grow into? You know, it's a little of both. I think the music thing was set pretty much in stone from the beginning. I think my particular orientation was set pretty much from the beginning. It was very illuminating to hear those whose sexual orientation or, you know, uh, gay or bisexual or whatever fluid ways that, that you want to describe it, a lot of them say the same thing that they pretty much knew when they were really young. I think about that because I know a fair amount of people, almost always men, who discover their fluidity later in life. And I don't want to say I disbelieve it, right? I side-eye it or I raise my eyebrow at it because I think there's a difference between knowing what your orientation is and accepting what your orientation is. I, I knew that I was not straight before I knew what straight or gay was. From being a little boy, I knew I liked boys and there was never really any wavering on on that, there may have been some questions as to the level of, of interest, but there's never been a question of disinterest. For those who weren't there, the cultural stigma in 1992, 1982, 1972 was magnified by tonnage. You could not come out of the closet in the 80s and maybe the first half of the 90s without there being like super ramifications, whether it be with your family, your job, your church, you put your livelihood at risk. And even today, even in America, there are a lot of people who put their livelihoods at risk by coming out. But now at least you're protected by law. You can get married to your partner legally. You have uh, civil rights. 15, 20, 25 years ago, that wasn't the case. So if you came out, you were really, really taking a risk. And for people, I want to say above 35 years old, a lot of them are coming out later in life because it's safe. They're not coming out later in life because they're making a discovery. So I don't know, I'd get off my soapbox, but <laughs> I think that the idea of someone not having any idea internally of what their sexual identity is or their romantic identity is until they are middle-aged without being able to put myself in everybody's head, I think that's a falsehood. Yeah, there's probably some level of self-preservation involved there. Like, okay, this feels safe now. But, you know, in, in my case, I knew I was straight from the beginning. And I also knew as people started putting labels on me that I couldn't easily be labeled. One of my friends used to describe me as straight edge. And, you know, I didn't mind when he introduced me to people that way because it meant that I wasn't going to be pestered with drugs and alcohol at a time when I didn't really have that much interest in getting wasted. But at the same time, it's like knowing what that word meant and the, the subculture that uh, 
went with the word straight edge, I thought, you know what, I don't really fit in with that. And based on my ethnic background, too, it's like, do I really fit in any of those boxes? I don't think so. I, I came to, to the conclusion that the only label for me is is my name, and you got to learn what it means by getting to know me. Translating that into adulthood, drawing a line between childhood, specifically high school and adulthood, I think back to my high school days, right? And the pressure to identify is so strong. I can remember there's the lunch table where the Asian kids sit. There's the lunch table where the black kids sit. There's the lunch table where the athletes sit and the theater kids sit here and the weed smokers sit here. I don't think we really had straight edge when I was growing up or at least where I was growing up. So there was never that, but the pressure to identify whether it be ethnically or socioeconomically or to fit into one of those breakfast club roles. And you seemed like you just had like no interest whatsoever. Yeah, that's true. I, I didn't really have much of an interest of aligning myself with any one particular group. I guess the way to describe it is there was sometimes a form of invisibility with who I was that could be a little frustrating at times. But the flip side was that I could walk in and out of different groups and generally be accepted, even though I didn't fully align with one or the other. I, it was a form of privilege, I guess, that I only discovered later in high school. And I think part of it had to do with the fact that it was part of the process of learning how to navigate the politics of different groups. And it was born out of frustration, and it led to learning how that frustration can be turned into learning tools to be, you know, accepted on your own terms within a certain group. It goes back to this one instance in high school when two of the more rambunctious kids in the class who were a year older than me, this was in our Spanish class, and we had mixed grades in the class, they would quite routinely interrupt the Spanish teacher's lessons with the funniest asides. And I could tell sometimes he thought it was funny, but most of the time he would get frustrated and tell them to be quiet. But most of us in the class would start laughing. And these kids would sometimes throw barbs at me that I didn't know what to do with. It felt like bullying initially, but then one day something in me just kind of flipped. And I don't even remember what it was I said, but they said something to me and I threw something back at them. And they looked at each other and they kind of smiled. And then from that moment on, they respected me and actually became protectors in a way. I remember during lunch and I went up to get something and I came back and this other kid was sitting in my seat and he was pretending to ignore me and like trying to ask him for my seat back. And he's just pretending I'm not there. And those two kids from my Spanish class see this from across the cafeteria. They see it happening and they get up and they walk with their swagger up to this kid. They stand behind him and they just start staring down at him. And then eventually he got up and left. That sounds like a scene from a movie. Yeah, it, it does. It, uh, it could very easily be written into a movie. It was classic. But uh, yeah, at that point, I, I had learned that, okay, I don't have to be exactly like 
some of these athletes in order to earn their respect, I could learn to connect in different ways. And I think that served me very well going into college and especially in adulthood where, you know, moving out to the Bay Area, I've found myself connected with a wide variety of groups of people. And it's been very rewarding, very fulfilling. You led me directly into my next question. So thank you for that. That doesn't happen very often. So I've only been out to the Bay Area once or twice in my life. And the impression that I get from the people that I know who live there, and I do know a fair amount of people who either do live there or have lived there in the past, is that it is much like New York is a melting pot in a way that not a lot of places, even in the fairly mixed up United States are, but that there is, there's a space for everybody in, in the Bay area that might be now crunched a little bit because of financial reasons, but that it does appear to be welcoming to everybody. Now, I guess my question is two pronged here. What a made you move out to the Bay area and B do you feel similarly comfortable just kind of like being Michael and not needing to fit into, because even as adults, a lot of grownups try or tend to really fit into one group or another. I really never had any thought in my mind of, of moving to the West Coast until after I finished college. My original plan was actually to be a New Yorker. I wanted to live somewhere where you didn't need a car and that you could just walk out of your apartment and get going with life. But one of my friends from college, who I'm still in touch with today, is a very dear friend. He invited me to visit him when he was working in Big Sur, tracking the endangered condors out there. And I had just recently scored my first full-time salary job, and I had paid vacation time, which was a new thing for me. And I thought to myself, well, I can take some time off, and I can go see California for the first time. And I swear, from the moment I first saw the, the sunny blue sky over Monterey, something in me just kind of flipped. And I was told by one of my former managers at the record store where I had worked years ago, who was also a big fan of California, he said, that place will change you once you visit it. Someday you got to go. And he was the first person I called when I felt the change. I found the nearest pay phone and I left him this message saying, you're right. I can feel it. It's happening. It was a really profound moment. You just felt in your soul that California was the place for you. Yeah. I was seeing sights I had never seen before. I was seeing colors in the vegetation that I had never seen before in real life. I was seeing with my own eyes what had inspired so many musicians and painters and authors all throughout history, I would sometimes wonder, like, why don't I feel this inspired where I currently live? But then I went out to California and suddenly, oh, it was like the floodgates opened. And I made it my mission to find a way to get out there. And it, I went through a process of trying to determine what would be the best place for me to, to settle. Spending a few days in San Francisco, I immediately knew that was the place. It felt like there was a little corner of every part of the world 
stuffed into the borders of that city. There was just so much variety, so much diversity. The contours of the land too were fascinating. The steep hills, like I loved that. It seemed to me kind of like everything I loved about New York, except with more exciting land contours and the buildings weren't as tall and the weather was better. When I found out that it doesn't snow there ever, I thought, okay, that, that's it, decision made. <laughs> that, that's my dream, Michael. My uh, dream is to live in a place where there is no snow. I mean, I've seen enough snow in my life to tide me over for the next 40 years. Oh, yeah, I can relate. Snow is one of those things that you'd think living there your whole life, you'd get used to it. But it seemed like each year I grew to detest it more and more. more. Yeah, I think me and you were very much aligned in that case. So the second question, I guess, one thing I love about New York is that my friend base is black and white and Asian and, and Latinx and, and gay and straight and everything in between and male and female and non-binary and trans and married and single and older and younger. It's like an appetizer sampler of different people that you can be around if you choose. I think a lot of people in New York do kind of pick their particular affinity group based on demographic information and stick with it, which, you know, do you. But as someone who thinks that there are lots of different people out there who have different things to offer, it's great to live in a place where there is more or less everything, mostly in terms of people, but in terms of cuisine, in terms of culture, in terms of all of that stuff. There's a little taste of everything. Do you find that to be the same where you're at? Generally speaking, yes. And here's where it gets interesting. So there's the, there are significant differences, I think, between Oakland, where I've lived for the past eight years, and San Francisco. San Francisco, I think, has some of that self-segregation that you were talking about. You definitely see that with friend groups and with even neighborhoods to a certain degree. Whereas Oakland feels a little bit more mixed up. Just looking at my block where I live, you've got straight and gay, you've got black, you've got white, you've got Latinx, you've got Asian American, you've got just about every color of the rainbow sitting just on this one block. And that's not unusual in Oakland. I mean, Oakland does have probably a larger percentage of black people than San Francisco, but I don't think there are strictly defined black neighborhoods in Oakland the way there are in San Francisco, for instance or Chinese neighborhoods like there are in San Francisco. And as far as friend groups and and fitting in, to a certain degree, my experience has mirrored that of my high school experience and my college experience too, where there are different types of friend groups that I can kind of flip back and forth. But as far as pressure, certainly a lot less external pressure to conform but internal pressure, I don't think it's any different. I do put a lot of pressure on myself to really try to understand where each person and where each group is coming from and to tailor my approach and navigate accordingly. And I do that in my professional life all the time. I think it served me very well. I think that's why I'm still with the same employer after 18 years and it's a really supportive environment there. And that's one of the groups too, is my work group versus the musician groups that I became friends with 
and my karaoke friends, which they're also theater people largely. It's a really, really dynamic group of people. And then friends I would meet through other friends and significant others. My girlfriend now, who I've been with for almost four years, her friend group, which I hadn't really gotten super deep into that particular group of people until I met her. She's really embedded in the the drag community in the Bay Area, which, as you can imagine, is largely LGBTQ, but it's a mix too. It's men and women. You got you, a lot of your traditional gay male drag queens, and you've got faux queens too. And I've met so many interesting people just through her. And it's a whole other world. You find these different worlds all over the Bay Area. Even within the music community, you've got your rock people, you've got your hip hop people, you've got your jazz people, which the jazz people are, they're just on a whole other planet. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to try to be good enough to even walk in the same room with them. And I still kind of get um, nervous when I hear one of them say to me, yeah, we got to play sometime when it's safe to get into a, a enclosed space. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I have the chops to hang with you, but I'd love to do that. <laughs> it's, it's funny. You think about musical snobbery, and I, mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily say that in a negative way. And I know that my jazz musician friends, and historically, the people that I've known who have either been jazz musicians or heavy into jazz fans over the past 30 years, there is, some might say it's kind of an intimidation. Some might say it's kind of a performative, like, extra coolness, or a performative, yeah, performative coolness, I'd say that that makes it somewhat different from rock snobs or hip hop snobs, even down to like slang that they use. And even now among people who are 20 years younger than me, like, yeah, I was listening to this cat and I was playing with this cat and we were listening to this record, you know, not listening to popular music and all this stuff. In my head, I'm like, shut up, kid. But (laughs) is that something that you see in the Bay Area as well? Not to the same degree that I've heard it exists in other places like New York and Chicago. This is just from my limited perspective, but it seems to be more about uh, building community because jazz is, when you look at all the different forms of music right now, probably jazz is the one that's lowest on the totem pole. You've got the fewest opportunities to put your music in front of audiences if you're not somebody who is getting played on the radio on the local jazz stations and if you're not someone who's signed to a label and you're not someone who who uh, doesn't have the clout to get connections at a place like sf jazz which i don't know if you're familiar with sf jazz but they're sort of like the uh, equivalent to i guess you could say because i know jazz at the philharmonic out in new york has its own program too right and they do a lot of festivals and SF Jazz does that out here too, a bit more on the progressive side than what you see in New York. But yeah, a lot of the venues have closed down and you've got to be really creative with your DIY spaces. And so there's definitely a sense of community, people trying to pool their resources so that the music can get heard. And that requires lifting people up. So it seems to be a bit more supportive than what I perceive it to be in in other parts of the country. And I think even with rock music that's happening to a certain degree as well. A lot of venues closed over the past two years, and it was starting 
even before the pandemic. So people are trying to lift each other up. It's a, it's a culture shift thing. Jazz, at one point a long time ago, was a much more dominant commercial force than it is now. Rock is getting to a place where, I mean, it is definitely no longer the dominant commercial force in music. And I think rock fans are now starting to realize that. And I think they're getting to the point where, yeah, they need to be a little bit more inclusive of one another and lift each other up more and be more collaborative because it's not like you pick up a guitar and, and the bass and a set of drums and you're automatically guaranteed entree into it. You're not at the top of the totem pole anymore. People are looking for whether it's singer songwriters or hip hop or, you know, electronic music, the predominant culture is not rock based. Yeah. And we're finding that out with the changes we're seeing in venues around here. They're prioritizing DJs over yeah. live musicians. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're a DJ, you're probably going to be getting more gigs and you're probably going to be making a lot more money than if money. you play a guitar or drums, you know? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So one thing I gather from you is that it's not a straight edge thing. It's more of like a hippie thing. There's a little of that. I don't necessarily look like your typical hippie. I tend to probably lean more towards the pragmatic side when it comes to how I present myself and taking these little incremental steps and just testing the waters has yielded some surprising results, whether it's you know the way I present my hair or even the steps I take musically. And just going back to when I was kind of feeling a little insecure about playing with some of the jazz people. I got an invitation to play bass with a couple of musicians who were a bit older than me. And I almost didn't accept the invitation because, again, I didn't think I, I had the chops to play with them. But I took a chance. And lo and behold, things started coming out of me that I didn't know were possible. And I was surprised at what came out. And we were basically rehearsing twice a week uh, for weeks and weeks. And that step sort of made me discover that, okay, I, I do have the ability to do this. I do have the ability to uh, not just appreciate what I hear on jazz records, but I can actually play with jazz musicians. If I put in the work, I can do it. This is a stretch, and it was a good stretch. Nice little vote of confidence for yourself there. Yeah. And I think those little stretches have happened professionally, too, to the point where now I'm doing work that I didn't think I was able to do or that I would be able to handle, serving as a right hand and a confidant to a, a senior executive and supervising a team and overseeing finances and HR processes. It's really, you know, how did I get here? <laughs> you know, think of that talking head song. So, <laughs> it's, you surprise yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of about pushing at the edges and. None of that would have been possible if I was not in uh, a supportive environment. Right, right. It's having and people around you that are willing to go there with you and yeah. who, who believe in you and who also give you positive affirmations and support. 
Absolutely. And I've been so fortunate to have worked with people who are very supportive, good mentors, strong moral compasses. The the supervisors that I've had over the years have just been some of the most incredible people that I've had the pleasure to work with. And I want to especially give a shout out to two of those supervisors, queer women who are like probably the two of the biggest boosters for me in my career that I've ever had in my life. Amazing. So it's like when you're accepting of anyone, regardless of who they are, you can do great things together. We all lift each other up. I know I had a positive impact on them and they had a positive impact on me. And I knew deep down that we all needed to stick together and accept each other for who we are and lift each other up. And the proof is, is where we all ended up years later. Preach. Indeed. So I do want to ask about your current status and and you talked in the little pre-show questionnaire about sort of coming late to relationships. So I'm wondering how that manifested itself and also what makes this particular relationship special for you? Great question. <laughs> how did coming late into relationships manifest? Well, I think it largely manifested in in my not having a strong guide as far as what to do with my feelings and how to channel them in a productive and effective way with girls when I was younger, but women as I got older. And not wanting to embarrass myself and not wanting to make anyone else uncomfortable, my default was to really not rock the boat. And in the process of not rocking the boat, you know, I, I tend to do a lot of observing. That's how I learn a lot. But with women, it was a lot more difficult because a lot of what I was observing and in interactions between girls and boys and women and men just totally mystified me. I would be seeing men do things to women that at first glance I'd think, why is he doing that? That's so wrong. And why is she taking it? And I couldn't really read the cues. It, it wasn't always immediately evident whether a man was doing something that a woman wanted or not. And also, I think I was growing up at a time when it still wasn't quite accepted that women would make the first move, that men had to make the first move which puts a lot of pressure on the man to do something, to make something happen. And I ended up not having any girlfriends in, in high school. I didn't have any in college either. It was really kind of tough seeing people doing this and that and feeling like I, I wasn't part of it or that I wasn't really accepted or I didn't know what to do to make it happen because what I was doing wasn't really leading anywhere. I was making a lot of good friends, but... I wanted more than just friends. How do you make that step without seeming like you have an agenda? I, I can imagine being the woman in that situation. And it's got to be weird having guys approach you and just kind of pull all of these 
supposedly workable tricks out of the indoctrinated masculinity handbook. And girls are probably just sitting there like, why do I have to take this? But then when you are dealing with somebody who doesn't want to, when you are a guy and you don't want to be a part of that leering, aggressive male culture, you're not necessarily given a rule book on how to approach people that you may have a romantic interest in. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're not given a rule book. And our, our parents, through no fault of their own, didn't really have uh, a rule book for us either. And my father was great at a lot of things, but one of the things that I, I don't think that he fully had all the tools to, to do was to teach me how to navigate that space. And I certainly wasn't going to get the best advice from my mother either. Their lives were very different than, than mine. And what I learned early on in my journey before I landed where I am now is that really the, the best way to navigate it is the simplest, but also the scariest, which is to just be direct. It's so scary to be direct like that. And for many years, I struggled with that. And I started going into therapy around that question because it was starting to have profound effects on my psyche. I was starting to question my own life worth, whether everything I was doing was worth it. Having, you know, suicidal ideation, you know, that started happening, I think, during my sophomore or junior, I think it was sophomore year of college was when I really started to um, feel it. By junior year of college, I, I really I hit a wall, which this isn't that extreme compared to what some other people go through. But the fact that I dropped a class felt like a big deal to me. I not only dropped a class, I was a jazz DJ on the college radio station. I quit the radio program. I was entertainment editor at the university newspaper. I quit that too. And I started seeing a therapist. And I've gone through several therapists over the years, but it took me until finally moving out to the Bay Area to, to accept and embrace the reality that I was going to have to go through an enormous amount of rejection before I could find acceptance and that I had to embrace the process of being rejected as steps in the process. I know there are a lot of pickup artists out there, some of whom are peddling some toxic ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very deliberately trying to find some that were, that were really intent on trying to help guys do better in the relationship space while also being good men and not turning into creeps, you know? Super important. Yeah. So eventually I landed in a period of time where I, I spent about 18 months doing the Tinder thing and just doing a lot of dating because prior to that, I was very much of the mind that the people that I will connect with best are going to be people that I meet in social spaces and will be from similar communities, which to a degree was true, but I wasn't really having great success. But taking that 18 months to really go out there and meet people and not care whether I was accepted or not, it was awkward at first. But the more I did it, 
And the more I got comfortable with being rejected and also becoming comfortable with rejecting others respectfully, I I started to build more self-confidence. In fact, I probably picked up one of my best rejection lines from a woman who rejected me. I got to see if I can find it. But it was something along the lines of, you know, I had a really great time meeting you. I didn't really connect with you in a romantic way, but I, I really appreciated the time and I wish you the best. Something along those lines. That's perfectly stated. And I used it with someone after that too. And it, it, yeah, it went over just as well with her as it went over with me. So I thought, okay, this this is great. Now that I know how to reject others, that also built my confidence up. It's respectful. And provided it comes from a place of honesty, I think that's a great thing to say. It's eloquent Mm -hmm. and it doesn't put blame on one person or another. Yeah. And it also reinforced in my mind that, you know, these things can't be forced. And I think I've, I've been guilty in the past of trying to force something into working that was never going to work mm-hmm. and thinking that, well, if it's not working, it must be my fault and I need to try harder. Right. Not everything Which, is meant to work and some things only work for a limited amount of time. Mm-hmm. It's exactly. all that's important to keep in mind. And now as you are in a four-year relationship, what does it feel like to be at that stage? It's indescribable, really. We definitely had a connection on that first date, and I could feel it was really strong by the end of the date. And I had another date already scheduled for the next day. I thought, this one went really well. Let's see how this other one goes. And it was kind of strange because the messages and interactions between these two women were very different with my current girlfriend at that time, our messages were kind of short, kind of terse. I didn't really get any indication of what the in-person interaction was going to be like. So I was like, okay, let's just see how this works. And in person, it was amazing. The other person, our online messages were much wordier. They were much deeper. It seemed like we were really connecting with words, but when we met, wow. It was the total opposite. There was zero connection. And some of the things that I was most excited about, she seemed to be like, eh, whatever. And I kind of knew by the end of that date that, okay, this is a, a dead end. That was the total opposite of what I was expecting. But this other one, okay, we kept having more and more dates and things kept uh, escalating. Um and it was funny because the the service that through which we met wasn't even uh, Tinder. It was this other service that uh, one of my musician friends had had introduced me to. He, he was staying with me for a little bit of time, and I, I remember complaining to him that, man, this this Tinder thing is getting me nowhere. I'm meeting lots of interesting people. I'm having good experiences, but I'm starting to wonder whether I'm ever going to meet anyone who's right for me through Tinder. And he said, well, have you heard of Hinge? I said, no, what's that? And he said, well, the way it works is it's similar to Tinder, but it has a little bit more interactivity involved in it. And it it chooses your matches based on friends of Facebook friends. The idea being that if you're friends with quality people, they're probably friends with quality, quality people. people. Too. Right. And there may be somebody in that expanded circle that would be right for you. And I thought, okay, I I like that concept. Let me give it a shot. 
And I think she was maybe the third or fourth person I connected with. And when I saw who our mutual connections were, two of them were acquaintances. They weren't people I would uh, say I was friends with. But one of them I was seeing with my karaoke friends group pretty much monthly. So I thought, okay, this is this is someone I can talk to as part of a vetting process. Right. And, and I, I was able to do that at one of our karaoke outings. I said to her, what do you know about this person? And once she knew who I was talking about, her face just lit up. She's like, oh, she is so wonderful. And she just started rattling off all these positive things about her. And I thought, okay, all right, this is somebody who I trust. And she can be critical of a lot of people. So if she's saying positive things, that's a, a high endorsement. Yeah. 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 So, And by the time you and I met, this was very early on. This was maybe a month or so into us dating. And it was one of those experiences that made me think this could go somewhere because she had this trip planned to New York. And she said, you know, I, I don't normally do this with, with people I'm dating, but if you want to meet up with me and my friend in New York, we're going to see the Bowie is exhibit. I thought, oh, wow, I like that idea. Yeah, sure. I'll meet up with you there. I'd love to see that exhibit. I've heard about it. And I've got all these other friends in New York I haven't seen in years. So in my mind, I was thinking, even if this doesn't go anywhere, and even if we don't get a chance to meet up, I'm going to have a chance to see people I haven't seen in years. Or in, in your case, in the case of one other person, there are people I had primarily known online and hadn't oh had a chance right. to meet in person yet. So right. I thought, how can I lose? Let's do this. And, and, and the rest is history. Yeah. There was a brief period where she backed away a little bit just because I think she was feeling a little overwhelmed. She was dating multiple people and she was coming off a, a toxic relationship. So when she backed off, I thought, okay, you know, do what you got to do. And for a couple of weeks, I was continuing on my quest and uh, I was about to see someone else on a first date. And then I told that person that there's someone else who, who I've been seeing we're kind of taking a break right now, but I'd still like to see you because I'm keeping my options open. Because at that point, this person I was going to meet, she had said that she wasn't looking for anything serious. She's just looking to have fun. So I thought, right. all right, that's cool. I, I like that idea. But then last minute, she canceled and said that she realized that she needed something more than just fun. And she was hoping to meet someone where it could go down a serious path. And she appreciated that I was open about the fact that I had been seeing someone else. So I said, okay, no problem. Thanks for letting me know. You know, I'm sure I'll probably have a chance to meet you someday since we had at least one person we knew in common. Common, yeah. And then I got a, a message back from from the one who's now my girlfriend now. She was like, yeah, I've been thinking about you. Do you have time to talk? And things resumed. And here we are almost four years later, having gone through so many ups and downs together and and still coming out strong what's been the thing that you've learned most about yourself as a result of this process process makes it sound like a business transaction as a result <laughs> of this relationship what have i learned the most about myself that's a that's a good question i think probably what i've learned is that i I always did have it in me 
to be a good partner for someone, despite the fact that I didn't always believe when people told me that. I would think, oh, they're just telling me that because they're not interested in me and they don't really mean it. But the feedback that I've been getting in the relationship has told me that, okay, I did have it in me to be a good partner for someone and that all the feedback I got in the past was probably genuine and probably reflective of the truth. It's also showed me that there are many different levels of love, even within the context of a romantic relationship. We, we talk about different levels of love between people, types of relationships, but even within a romantic relationship, there are many different levels of love and that maybe some of them I'm better at than others and that the growth process is going to be ongoing. And as long as we're we're committed to it, it can continue to be a wonderful thing. That's awesome. And I, I will end on this question. A lot of people think that honesty is the most important component to a relationship, any relationship, romantic relationships especially. And I think that's the case. Have you also found that to be the case? Do you think it's, it's something else? And I will also add that I think radical honesty is super important to a relationship. I think it's important to be not blunt to the point that you're hurting other people's feelings, but do say what's on your mind at any given time. Has it been difficult <clears throat> for you to be communicative and honest within your relationship structure? I know that the, the stereotype is that it's more difficult for men than it is for women. I think the stereotype definitely holds true in my case. It has been difficult at times and I've also run into situations where sometimes the way that I present my honesty doesn't always go over so well. But fortunately, there's a level of love and trust there where she'll uh, be able to speak her mind, like why something I may have said or done didn't feel good and what the source of that was. And learning from that, I can figure out, oh, how can I do better next time? Because I don't think it's enough to just be honest. I think you also have to take into account how your partner sees the world and your partner's view of oneself. You have to take into account what your partner is looking for from you and balance that artfully with truthfulness and honesty and giving your partner a sense of safety sense of emotional safety. It's not enough as a man to just provide physical safety. Right. You know, right. That Absolutely. is probably the most persistent, dominant male stereotype that we've got in our culture. And it's something that's been on my mind a lot over the years that, okay, I think that that idea served its served its purpose in its time. There was a time in our history when being able to provide physical safety, defense from threats was super, super important. And to a degree, it's still important, but it's not the be all end all like it once was. You can take that too far to the point where other important elements start to suffer. And I think now in today's world, it's, it's even more important to provide a sense of emotional safety and security. We live in a world where a lot of the threats 
to our safety that that we used to experience that human as human beings earlier in our history have largely been addressed. And the way we've organized our society, unless you live out in the deep wilderness and you're surrounded by grizzly bears or something, you don't really have to worry about being attacked by animals on the street while you're trying to come home with food, you know, and you don't have to worry about warding off people who are coming to storm your house and raid every item in your in your house. I mean, to a certain degree, that does still happen, but we've got security systems, we've got police forces, we've got weapons, if you're the kind of person who likes to have weapons. We've got all sorts of technological solutions to those safety issues. And because of that, our perceptions of our world have changed and our needs have changed, our psychological needs have changed. And I think it's super, super important to learn how to navigate that space and to provide your partner with um, the emotional safety and security that we need. And that's something I think I knew deep down for many years, but didn't really have a way to artfully express it, which, you know, I think we've evolved our lexicon enough that it's a lot easier to talk about it now. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And I agree with you that you have to know your partner and know yourself enough to be able to properly nuance these conversations. But it's important to have the conversations. I've not thought a whole lot about the physical safety piece. And decades and centuries ago, there was that need. But technology has eliminated that need. And I I think in some men's minds and in some women's minds, because this this goes back to the whole patriarchal thinking is not only practiced by men. There are still a lot of people who think that, oh, either I need a man to physically protect me or this woman needs me to physically protect her when that isn't the case anymore. And maybe again, I'm projecting, I'm talking about what I'm looking for in relationships is emotional protection significantly more so than physical protection. Yeah, I think probably more of us need that than we're willing to admit. And one thing I also really thought was important was to be on more equal footing with my partner. It's really difficult to match up with someone where you're gonna be exactly equal. Yeah, that's never gonna happen. But you can strive for being equitable, which is that's an important distinction there, and how to look out for your own individual interests and, and deciding together when it's important to band your resources together. Those are all super important things, and I, I think they are being discussed more now within the framework of relationships, but they, I don't think that they're discussed enough because we're still working off of an outdated playbook. Yes, absolutely. We most definitely are. And a lot of the arrangements that we make with each other now are would be completely foreign to our grandparents. Yes, absolutely. And for a good reason, because in anything in life, progress is important. And yes. My mom and my stepdad got married in 1981. And 41 years ago is forever. Yes. So what worked in our parents' generations is not going to work now because just the world is different. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And we've learned a lot more. Yeah. Our our base of knowledge has increased and 
I think about some of the some of the arrangements that other couples I know have. And if my grandparents were alive today, their heads would probably be spinning. You know, you've got people in in uh, open relationships. You've got people who are in relationships that are gay or that are not even living in the same place. I've got one friend, he and his wife were going through a really rough patch. And through counseling and continuing to work on the relationship, they discovered that living in separate houses actually was something that made their relationship stronger. And I thought, wow, that's that's amazing that the two of you came to that conclusion and that it's been working for you. That probably took a lot of courage because we're of the generation where that sort of thing was ingrained in our consciousness as, no, you don't do that. Yeah, if two people can't live in the same house, they're not meant to be together, which is so silly. I, I The idea of, idea of sharing personal space with somebody doesn't really sit well with me. And I think of the people that I love most where that relationship would be severely compromised if we were to live in the same house. And, mm-hmm. and it just seems like such a, a an obvious fact of life that we have kind of been conditioned to believe should not be a fact of life or at least not an option. Yeah. We have these ideas put in our mind and this is something else I've thought a lot about too. I don't know if it's the way that concepts were presented to me when I was a child or if it was the way my mind was working then or some combination of both, but When you're in a little bubble and you receive information a certain way, you start to think that's the way it's meant to work Mm -hmm. everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you start hearing about people saying things differently or doing things differently. And, you know, your immediate impulse might be, oh, that's wrong. But over time, if you allow yourself to be open, which I think we all need to keep working at allowing ourselves to be open to different ideas, you learn that, okay, there's more than one way to do something. There's more than one way to have a relationship. There's more than one way to have good health. And there's more than one way to relate to friends and family or to even to say certain things to people. There's so many different ways. And our challenge is to find out, especially with regard to relationships, what methods are going to work in in what contexts? And to just be open to switching up your methods based on the context. Growth. Yeah. And it can feel overwhelming. You know, I think my, one of my initial complaints when I was learning how to navigate internal politics at work and just with different people in general was man, I have to like learn a different way to talk to each and every person. How am I supposed to track all of that? And we're very resilient and we're very inventive beings and we find ways to do it. Damn right. Um, it, it might seem overwhelming and impossible at first, but you know we can all surprise each other when we just be open to the possibility that, okay, maybe I can do this. Progress and empathy, two things I am very much down for, and uh, those are, of course, recurring topics throughout detoxicity, and uh, very much up for celebrating the differences between us, 
reach a greater understanding of who we all are individually and collectively. And of course, those differences should not have anything to do with hate whatsoever. Once you bring hate into the equation, you take yourself out of the equation. So uh, thank you, Michael, for making some very salient points and for being so open and honest with your story and uh, just generally for being a great friend. Uh, If you are interested in knowing more about Michael and his prodigious collection of physical media, follow him on Instagram at frontparlor, F-R-O-N-T-P-A-R-L-O-U-R. Thanks again, Michael. Appreciate you very much. Thanks for listening to the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. Once again, if you want to find me online, hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I'm on Twitter intermittently at TizMikeJoseph. You can go to Facebook.com slash Detoxicity. You can email me, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Love to hear constructive criticism. Love to hear feedback. Would love if you are a potential guest or you know somebody who you think would be a potential guest, please, by all means, reach out to me. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe, rate, comment, do all of the things necessary to push this podcast up in the podcast rankings and get this into as many ears as possible. Tell a friend, do whatever it is you need to do. And uh, thank you once again for listening. I personally want to thank the following people for their support. Uh, Calvin Williams and Jacob Block, Jeff Giles and Andrew Grossman. Thank you very much. I hope all of you stay well, stay safe and healthy. Until next time.